Well, since we are in April, and many of you got to dodge the April showers as you are running in today, we know that April showers bring May snow. And uh, this is Syracuse, you do know. So we're, we're hoping for the flowers by the time we get to May. But we've entered into this season where for the next three weeks, I would like, this isn't really a series as much as, as, much as this is a theme that's going to take place over the next three weeks. And, and that theme is, this is about us. This is about us. And we're going to be studying some different scenes and encounters that happen between the time of Jesus' triumphal entry into, Jer- into Jerusalem, which we recognize as Palm Sunday, and uh, which is officially next Sunday, and the resurrection, which of course is Easter. So for those of you that love chronological order, for those of you that love things to happen exactly on the right days that we should be preaching, this is going to drive you nuts. I just need to, for those of you that have biblical OCD, I apologize ahead of time because I'm actually starting today with after the triumphal entry and some encounters that Jesus has with people. Next Sunday on Palm Sunday, I actually will be speaking about the words from the cross, but by Easter, we will be at resurrection together. So we end good. We end good. So I just want to give you a heads up of all of that. Uh, There's just so much that happens during the Passion Week, that trying to get it all in in a timely fashion becomes very difficult. So this overarching theme of this is about us is is what we're going to be speaking of. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 12, and we will be referring to a specific parable that is mentioned in other Gospels, and uh, you're going to need your Bibles to kind of turn back and forth to some places today. And if you don't have a Bible, we will be showing you the Scriptures on the screen behind me as well. But in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him. They beat him sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, "'They will respect my son.'" But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left and went away. Father, I pray that as we begin to focus our attention on some things that have happened in preparation of Resurrection Sunday, that you, through the help of your Holy Spirit, would enlighten us. Teach us truth 
that we may apply it to our life and give you glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There is one phrase that is at the end of verse 12 that is provided for us that I believe is the key to understanding this parable and the key to applying it. And if it were not for this final phrase, we probably would not be able to deal with this parable as directly or as successfully. And the phrase that I am referring to is found there when it says, the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. The first thing we do is we look at this and say, who is the them that we're talking about? Who is this them? Well, there were three groups of people that were included within that category. They were the chief priests, the one who were in charge of all of the temple worship. They were in charge of the sacrifices. They were the head of the priesthood that were there. And then it also says that there were the teachers of the law. In other words, the educational system at that time, those that were the teachers of Scripture, the law at that time, they were a part of this. And then there were the elders, those who had lived their lives in such a way that they deserved the respect. So you have the chief priests, the teachers of everything, and the elders gathered together into a group of people that contained all of the power. They they comprised the ruling council of the Jews. And we know that what they have in mind is found in verse uh, 18 of Mark 11. It said, For the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began to look for a way to kill Jesus or kill Him because they feared Him and because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. How many of you know jealousy is a lousy thing? They begin to recognize that what they wanted, Jesus was receiving. And so as you look at this, we recognize that this particular parable took place after Jesus had already entered into Jerusalem. And we know from chapter 11 that when he came into Jerusalem, which was known as the triumphal entry, there was tremendous adoration that had taken place on the part of people. We knew that they had covered the streets with palms. They had thrown their coats out there. They're shouting to him and and elevating Jesus in the eyes of all the people. Now, this group of men, this ruling group of men, this really disturbed because they didn't like it that Jesus... Uh, was receiving the adoration and the attention and the celebration that they felt they should be the beneficiaries of. They did not want to share their glory and their position with Jesus. And they follow this up in Mark eleven eleven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. I love this passage of Scripture because Jesus now has entered in and he gets to the temple and he sees everything that's going on. How many of you have ever walked into a room and you just stop and you just look around? You're just gathering information. I talked to a family this week that said that they had been looking for a new house and they went to to visit a house that was open and they walked in and the people had left underwear on the railing to the steps. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm trying to sell my house, I'm not leaving my underwear out on the stairway. It would be one of those situations you walk in and you're just taking this in. Did they wash the dishes? Do they really do they really want to sell this house? Or maybe they just wanted you to feel at home. I don't know how you live. But Jesus as he gets to Jerusalem that day just gets to the temple and he looks around and it's it's late in the evening 
And he just goes to Bethany to be with the 12. But I believe that in that moment, Jesus had already decided what he was going to be doing the next morning. Because the day, according to Scripture, starts with him cursing a fig tree that had no fruit. Then he goes back to the temple, which he had observed the night before, causes quite a stir because he overthrows the tables of the money changers. He reestablishes the purpose of his house as this shall be a house of prayer for all people. He begins to rearrange the temple priorities and the purposes in which he has come for. And as a result of this, all of these religious rulers that are a part of this system decided that it is time for Jesus to go, and they are going to challenge him and embarrass him in front of everybody, putting him to shame so that people will know how smart they are and how dumb he is. Now, I don't know about you, but you have to be really arrogant to think that you're going to outsmart God. It really, I don't think, was so much an intellectual quest on their part because they are not looking for the truth because they had already decided what they wanted to do with him. They just wanted to publicly humiliate him and put him in his place so that they would be elevated in intelligence for everybody to see. So what they wanted to do that day when they confronted him was to show Jesus that they were the ones with the proper credentials. They wanted to show Jesus that they were the ones that had the proper background to be celebrated, that they were the ones that had the authority, that they were the ones that had the power, and that this Galilean carpenter really had nothing of worth to say for himself. But at the end of Mark chapter 11, in verses 27 through 33, we read this. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests... The teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus was not caught off guard. He's never caught off guard. And so he replied with this, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it of human origin? Tell me, Jesus said. This group of highly intelligent men gather together in a little group and have a little huddle, the first football huddle you've ever heard of. And they begin to discuss it among themselves. And they say, if we say that this was from heaven, he's going to ask us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's of human origin, they were now surrounded by people that were listening to this conversation, and they were afraid of the people because the people had held that John was a prophet. So they turned around after all this, and they said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither then will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So you need to understand they came for the purpose of confronting him to make him look silly, and in an instant, Jesus turns everything around on them, and they are standing there with no answers. What interests me about this is that after having trying to embarrass Jesus, and it blows up in their faces, and they're left staring at each other with no intelligent way to respond. They'd made a dreadful mess of things, and they're sitting there in the middle of this, and Jesus recognizes this moment of confusion on their part, and immediately Jesus goes on the offensive. They had come to challenge him. He's now put them in their place, and he's not stopping now. And so he instantly begins to speak a story, a parable, 
And here's what takes place. As the people are all gathered around this group, he tells a story that the people would come to understand the importance of it, but also the religious leaders hearing it would also come to understand it. And so here's the way I'd like to approach that this morning. I want to describe the parable, show you the punchline, and then end with the postscript. The parable, as we know, it might seem strange to us as we read it because we live in a different day and time than they did. But what Jesus was describing was not unfamiliar to the lifestyle of their day. We live in a technical world today. So if Jesus was telling us a parable, it may have something to do with smartphones. But he was telling them the parable. And so it was way more agrarian than that. But they were familiar with this kind of scenario. In fact, Historians tell us that at this particular time and in this particular location, there were large tracts of land that were in Judea and Galilee that were owned by foreigners so that these foreign absentee landowners would lease out their property to tenants who would live on it. They would farm it, and then as a source of income, they would live off some, and they would give all of the rest to the landowner, and they agreed to these things. The landowner had a legitimate right to payment, and often the payment that the owner required was the produce that came from that property, not in its totality because the tenants deserved to live on what they had grown, but the owner deserved a significant portion of it. And so in verse 2, when we read the phrase, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them the fruit of the vineyard, that indicates to us that in this parable, the contract that had been agreed to was that produce would be given back to the owner of the land and that he would receive a portion of the harvest to fulfill the contract. But instead of the tenant farmers understanding the servant that was coming... They decided to dispute the claim of the landowner, and they did so by insulting and assaulting the servants that he sends. In fact, in terms of background to this parable, the hearers knew that it not only had application to their society, but the religious leaders that were hearing this also understood the foundation of this parable scripturally. And it is for this reason that these supposedly brilliant men of the law these religious leaders perceived that what Jesus was doing was telling the parable and they were realizing, this is about us. Now let me ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5, which is going to give us just a little clarification on the depth of the meaning of this parable because there's one verse in verse 7 that says this, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. Now, I want you to remember this Old Testament passage as we apply it to this New Testament parable because we discover that the prophet of God is addressing the people of God and he's addressing them as if they are the vineyard of God. Do you understand that? Because if you do, that that will help us because then the picture becomes clear. The vineyard is Israel. The owner is God. The servants are the prophets and the Son is Jesus. And it's because the high priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders knew their Bible and understand Scripture that they were realizing quickly that Jesus was not simply telling a story just to keep people's attention, but He was employing a parable in order to confront them directly with what they were doing. And so in telling the story... 
with them present. Remember, he's looking them right in the eyes, looking into the faces of the people that he is describing. And so what has become obvious to us as the reader is becoming apparent to everybody that is standing there listening to Jesus tell this story. And what he is doing is he's telling these fellows, you know the history of Israel. You know what has happened. God has sent again and again and again prophets to his people, and the people have revolted against them again and again. And you begin to picture this, that Jesus is telling this story while he is standing in Jerusalem. It has been the focus and the purpose of God throughout history, standing right there facing the ones that hate him and telling a parable that's going to confront them. And now Jesus, the son, as he looks over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37, says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent you. And we look at this from our perspective and we say, Wow, how powerful was that moment. And you will notice in verse 6 of our text, He still had one left to send, a son whom he loved. I find the phrasing of that really interesting because by now these religious leaders would have heard the story of Jesus' baptism, and they knew that there was a voice from heaven by then that said this when Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So they had the ability to associate the voice of God as it related to Jesus. And in this parable that Jesus is speaking, the unthinkable is done. The owner says, let me send my beloved to them, saying they will respect my son. And in sending the beloved, they kill him. I cannot imagine how uncomfortable it would be for those religious leaders to hear this story from the lips of Jesus They must have all stood there unable to speak except for the means of just giving a quick look to each other because they recognized as he's telling the story that Jesus was on to them. That what they had hoped to do in secret, Jesus was declaring it publicly going, I know what's going on. And they realized as Jesus tells this parable, this parable is about us. This is about us. And this is the key to understanding it. And if you misplace that key, then things can go very wrong very quickly in this parable. But we get to point number two, the punchline. And it's essentially found in the second half of verse 9 when it says that Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Let me tell you what he will do. He will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Now, as you read that, The first thought is, if you're the wise men that are standing there, what is going to stagger you the most about this statement of Jesus? Is it the fact that he's mentioned capital punishment, that he has the right to come in and wipe out everybody who he had leased that to? I don't think so, because these people knew the Ten Commandments. They knew that they had a significant sense of justice, and these characters understood that if they had been killing people, no doubt that the owner of the vineyard had every right to bring the full power of the law to be on those that had killed those who had come before. 
And so when it says that he will come and kill those tenants, I believe that that was something that they received pretty easily. Here's what staggered them. Here was the real point. And he gave the vineyard to others. He gave the vineyard to others. This they could not handle because they had had such an understanding of God's purposes for Israel and they had had an understanding of their place and the role of the worship of Israel. They thought this can't happen because you can't have worship in the temple without us. There is no vineyard without us. We're the ones that handle all of this. And the idea that Jesus would say that the vineyard or the ministry would be ripped from them, the kingdom would be ripped from them and given to others was more than they could take. They must have been saying in their mind, are we to assume that if this parable carries all the way through to the end of its application, that the owner in this parable is going to rip us from power and rip us from authority and kill us and give our temple to somebody else? And as they put it together, they begin to recognize in their mind what Jesus was saying, and they don't like it. They don't like it one bit. In fact, when Matthew was describing this scene, in chapter 21, verse 23, he says it this way, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. Here's the conflict. The rulers were saying, this is ours, and you cannot take it away from us. And Jesus tells them, oh, yes, I can. I'm going to take it away from you. In fact, back at Matthew chapter 21 and verses 38 through 40, it says this. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Do you know how stupid sometimes lost people can be? They see the son of the owner coming, and in their mind, they're thinking, if we just get rid of him, then we get it all. Not thinking that the owner might have the last word in all of this. Sometimes when you are lost and you are without Christ, you are easily deceived. In fact, Matthew continues on and says that in this story, it was almost as if Jesus was speaking in a rhetorical way because the next verse says that the crowd begins to jump into this and they respond, well, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And they replied, and then he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. This is the drama. And this the religious leaders could not stand. This is going to be taken from us and given to others? What does this mean? It means that God will now bring to bear upon the unfolding story of redemption through the creation of a new Israel. And the new Israel will be comprised of those of a Jewish background who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as well as those from a Gentile background who believe in Jesus as a Messiah. I want you to know as we enter into Passion Week and we enter into this season, the reason that I as a non-Jewish person can celebrate is because I was given the opportunity to 
join in the vineyard. I was given the opportunity to come to know Jesus as my Messiah as he took the vineyard from those that knew not what to do with it and opened it up for us. In fact, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 writes this, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the others to whom he is going to give his vineyard in, includes or consists of the church of all who have repented and believed the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Now, if you really want to study a little bit more about this and where you fit into all of this, I encourage you during your devotions this week to study Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 and ponder all that Paul has to say about the fact that the rejection of the Jew meant salvation for the Gentile. And the Gentiles have been grafted in, and that day, there's coming a day, there's going to be a great resurgence of Jewish people who will... Embrace the Messiahship of Jesus and understand that purpose. And it's a wonderful story. It's not so much that he is saying, I've rejected the Jew, as much as he's saying, I'm going to open the door to the Gentiles. And here's what he's saying. I am rejecting those who stumble over my son, regardless of your history. I'm rejecting those who stumble over my son. Those that come to trust him from every background, from every nation, from every tribe, from every language, from every tongue. I am going to give you the vineyard. Do you get that today? The understanding of what Jesus is doing for us as he opens up to us an opportunity. You see, the prophets had gone to the people of God again and again and again, and instead of responding, they beat them treated them with disrespect. They stoned them and they killed them. Jesus has now come as the son to his people. And what does John tell us in the prologue of John chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Do you get that this morning? It changes everything for us. So that when you feel in your spirit the prompting and the pursuing of the Holy Spirit, when he knocks on the door of your heart as I'm praying that he is doing for you who are here today as well as those of you that are watching online, what happens to us is that we come to a point of decision and one of two things has to happen. You will either soften your heart and it will bring faith alive in you or you will harden your heart. And in this story, as Jesus is confronting these religious leaders, they became irritated and they hardened their heart. They were not impressed and they were not converted. They wanted to be told, ours is an exclusive club. We come from the right background. We have the right heritage. And Jesus confronts them and says, no, here's the story. The owner sent his son and you killed him and here's what's going to happen the postscript 
Actually, there's a quote within this from Psalm 118. As Jesus begins his parable, he's, he's making sure that the story he is telling is grounded in Scripture. And the parable comes out of Isaiah 5 when it concludes with this quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he says to these men, have you not read the Scripture? Now, I, I admit that Jesus has a little sarcasm here. It's a language that many of us speak well. So maybe it's birth of the Holy Spirit if we use it right. Just throwing that out there. So Jesus is looking at them, these men who are the teachers of the law, and goes, have you never read this? Of course they've read it. In fact, it is with some irony that from this very scripture is what the people were singing and chanting when he made his way into Jerusalem on the triumphant entry. When they are sitting there and they're going, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he can look at these men and say, have you read this recently? And of course I would say, of course we've read it recently. Then he says, but then do you get it? He's telling them, you rejected Jesus, the stone that is absolutely crucial in the construction of the temple. And Jesus, whom you despise and you reject, is actually the one that holds everything together. And then he quotes the rest of it. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I get to declare to you today that Jesus is marvelous in all that he does and in all that he desires. He is holding us together today, and it is marvelous what he is doing. What makes it so chilling to me is the fact that these religious leaders, with all of their knowledge of the Bible, all of their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, they find themselves in touching distance of the Messiah. They could have reached out and embraced Him. They could have fallen on their faces before Him and recognized His authority and who He was and what He was doing. They were that close to the physical Jesus. But you will notice in verse 12 that they go on their cowardly way, blinded by the animosity to the truth. Jesus is going to die for his conviction. These characters were unprepared to even handle the fear of the people that were around, and they were not ready to die for theirs. Worship team, if you please come. So in this parable, they are cowards. The tenants kill the son, not because they didn't recognize him. This is an important point for you to understand. They killed the son not because they didn't think it was the son. They killed him knowing it was the son in this story. They knew exactly who he was. And out of that point, I want to tell you today, I am finding today that people reject the claims of Christ not because they misunderstand them today, but because they do understand them. Here's the way those conversations go for us. When we're having a conversation with somebody and we're telling them about Jesus, and their, their response to us is, do you mean to tell me, have you ever heard that before? Do you mean to tell me that Jesus Christ is the only Savior? Yes. Because He's the only one that's qualified to save. Do you know of anybody else who died for your sins? 
and was resurrected for your justification? No. And in the culture in which we live, it's not that they don't recognize it because they come back with this question. Do you mean to tell me that Jesus is the judge of all of the earth and that he will do it righteously? Yes. He has set a day and he will judge the world and that day is fixed. That day will be fair and that day will be a final day. And they say, well, do you mean to tell me? In other words, I'm not recognizing. I didn't know when he came because I recognized when he came, but I just want to get this clear. Do you mean to tell me that I have to give up my life? I have to give up myself in order to become his disciple that I just give myself to him? Yes. Yes, because if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. And so many in our culture today respond with this, I'm sorry, but I just cannot accept that at all. I am sorry, it's just too much for anybody to ask of me, not because they don't recognize Jesus, but because they do recognize Him and are not willing to acknowledge Him. And today, if that is you, this story is about you. You fall into the same category of those religious leaders. And you have a choice today. You can reject the Son and all of His claims, not because you misunderstand, but, but today because you do understand. And those claims are clearly understood. And the implication of Jesus' story applies to all of us today. This is about us. So how about you? 